On this episode, NASA, mountaineering, politics and science, and the most interesting woman in the world. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome to another edition of the Almost There Adventure podcast. We are still doing this remotely, but we are sort of equally split today. We have a guest from Bend, uh, one of our co-hosts, Jeff is in Bend, and then two of us, Jason and I, are in LA. Um, But we would like to welcome Eileen Perez. She is an adventure photographer and scientist, an all-around amazing human. Um, Just happened to be the first woman to summit Aconcagua from Cuba. Um, So I'm just going to let you, Eileen, go ahead and give a little bit more introduction to yourself and who you are. Well, I think you did a pretty good job, you know. I, it's so hard to follow those introductions because you always feel so flattered and then uh, then you don't know what to say. But yeah, I do uh, adventure photography and then um, I've worked excessively in physics and astronomy and I do a lot of uh, science communication and, and advocacy stuff. Uh, I kind of like everything that is science, both on Earth and space. So I do a little bit of both and... and um, Earthwise, I do like to explore and I do like to go higher. I am trying to figure out how to go to space from one of these mountains. Uh, so I do tend to go higher in the mountains. And yeah, I've been uh, just trying to break my own personal you know, goals and just continue to explore. I usually try to go to places where I can understand a little bit more about um, you know, uh, culture. And I like to go to places where culture and science meet and then I can add some sports to it. I, um, yeah, I'm a, I really believe in education. I hate traveling for no purpose. Um, a resort is like the death of me. So, yeah. And so I would I know, agree with that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so, Eileen, I know we've talked before. One of your passions in sort of adventuring and doing sort of your adventure photography into far away places is to sort of capture how the environment is changing and climate change and really sort of being able to take your skill of storytelling and your ability to adventure and, you know, your athleticism and all those things to sort of explore far off places. What are some of the most impactful places you've been? Well, first, I want to elaborate a little bit on that. Um, You know, I spend 10 years working heavily in academia, which is the opposite of the outdoors. You're in an underground bunker doing physics with a bunch of lasers or working in some national lab where you don't see light, you know? Um, So to me, like um, exploration was sort of like a method to become a lifelong learner in a way, because you know, you left, you leave school, you have this commencement and you don't feel like you have, you know, nothing, you know, like you're finally out of school and you don't really know yourself outside of academia. So for me, uh, coming from somebody who was really curious about the world and spent so much time studying it in, in mathematical terms and physics and all of that, I felt like I had a huge hole in my life and I felt really unaccomplished. Even when I was in grad school, I was, I felt like there was something really missing. So, um, you know, outdoor exploration really became sort of my 
non-curriculum way to do science. And it was, I got to practice more doing citizen science, which I think is really important, especially nowadays where we see a huge uh, movement against science literacy and uh, anti-science movement. So citizen science is something that we have failed to do um, as a society, you know, and it's uncool to be good at math, which I, th I find it preposterous that somebody can admit to that. But, you know, it's just little things like that, that we have created a, a social uh, fabric that really goes against exploring our planet in a way that's safe or understand our planet even better. So that was what I needed to go with my academic, uh, my academia. And I just now just did like a, I did a talk with Explorers Club we've been working for a month just talking about exploration for the sake of science and what that means and and uh, exploration for the sake of science means that you're going to a place that is probably not on the gram as i would say uh, and that means that if you're going to go take a photo you're probably not going to go to the gram spots and and take your brow off and then do the one of those poses that i made it at the top it means that you are looking for places that have something really valuable to the planet, whether it's archaeological, whether it's, you know, astronomical, uh, whether it's just something that is for you, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing something for yourself as well. Um, for me, um, probably one of the most special um, things I've ever done was climbing a mountain called Jujajaco, it's a volcano, uh, is where they found the most, the, the world's best preserved mummies. And there were just kids in, in Peru, uh, in uh, Chile, where they were, well, the mountain is kind of in the border. Uh, so if you ask an Argentinian, they will say, it's an Argentinian peak. And if you ask a Chilean, they will say, it's from Chile. So there's a little bit of debate on that. I climbed from the Chilean side. But um, Capacocha is this really incredible archaeological, um, has less, a bunch of archaeological sites. And Capacocha is a um, sacrificial sort of sacrifice where they would kill the you know kids by taking them to the top of these mountains and leaving them there for the gods and they would do this huge pilgrimage that would sometimes go from peru to chile which is just unbelievable to think about and uh, so i went to the museum of salta got to see some of these mummies and talk to some of the scientists in person and it was unbelievable to see these mummies this is not what i ever thought of mummies for example uh, I always thought of mummies as this wrapped uh, or, you know, cloth Egyptian things. They're not like these are perfectly preserved uh, Inca children, you know, and you see the skin and everything on it. And you can see one of them had um, altitude sickness and one of the things that had a pulmonary edema and it's the only rate, the only bit of blood is actually in his hand from coughing and you can, you can see these things. So to me, this is probably one of the best places I've ever been to in terms of how fulfilled I was. It cost me zero dollars to climb. There was no permits, there were no guides, and there was no one on trail. And I got to do my own uh, route founding skills, and I got to see ruins, and I go to the top of this incredible volcano in the Atacama Desert, which was, you know, another, another thing. So that's one of the most uh, remote I would say that most people don't get to explore and, and I'm, I was really happy about that. And I think that that is worth exploring if you have the skills to go there. And, and I do think that, you know, the reason I push myself athletically is not really because I want to be an athlete is because it allows me to go to places like that. So, and um, yeah, I also uh, explored the Sahara Desert with a Berber, Berber nomadic uh, tribe in, in, in Africa. And that was really amazing. Uh, 
I traverse Iceland and some of the you know places where you don't see anyone for two weeks and it's uh, it's you know I think there are so many places on earth that, you know it's true that they say that every inch of the planet is mapped on Google but it's not true there there's a lot of places left to explore that have a lot of meaning both scientifically and personal so why hasn't Dozeki's like made you the, like a, a series of commercials as the most interesting woman in the world yet why hasn't that why has that not happened <laughs> <laughs> i guess i'm not a good sweet talker yet so uh, it is difficult to make um these days i find it really difficult to actually communicate well what you're doing uh, in a way that it doesn't get lost in the noise. I, I've been really upset at social media in the last year, as many people have been. Um, I actually have been very remote. I think the last thing I posted, I posted something and then the post before that was from July. I usually post a lot of photos as I am a photographer and people are like, why are you going to post all things? I have a mil I have terabytes and terabytes of photos to post. But it just it feels really inauthentic, and, and that's something I don't I don't like. And I feel like um, unless you're an influencer, which I don't consider really myself an influencer, even though I, I do create some influence, is just by the definition, I find it a little bit offensive. So um, I find it I find it a little bit difficult to sell myself myself for a brand and things like that. Like even now, like I have contracts with brands where I'm supposed to keep a certain level of engagement and I'm not doing it and is is my personal moral choice I am not going to advertise travel in a time of a pandemic and I am not going to advertise selling $300 pans during a large economic recession and then that's just something I, I have until I figure out what I can do in this time that is meaningful I will remain quiet. Nice. You did just mention that you're into photography. Um, how did you first get into photography? Was it through your science? Was it through these adventures you were doing? Is it something you've always had a passion for since you were young? So I grew up in Cuba. I was born, in, born and raised in Cuba where photography was like, you know, uh, you know, the revolution happened in 59, and that was probably the last time we got cameras in Cuba. So I grew up, people see photos when I was a kid, and they say, like, what year were you born? And I was like, in the 80s, I was in the 80s. It looks like all my photos are black and white until, like, I'm, like, 12. Um, and um, so I didn't grow up with photography. Uh, photography really came almost as a surprise. Um, so when I was an undergrad, um, I worked a lot in imaging and a lot of detection stuff for astronomy. So I worked at an observatory where I was operating large infrared. So which is practically, you know, telescopes are just the camera, just for a different scale. And then I worked in the Cassini spacecraft for, uh, with NASA. And my job there was actually to operate the cameras on the Cassini spacecraft. And that was really my first title as a photographer, even though like I was there as a scientist and engineer, but uh, it, it really, what I was doing was taking photos, like I was doing nothing else. Um, and it never really clicked onto me that my, my, my job was really optics until much later in my life. I, I finished um, my job at NASA and then I was going into grad school and um, I went for particle physics and I was uh, trying to design accelerators that could, you know, observe and take images at a particle scale and then when i realized i had become a photographer just for the particle scale so like almost every route i took it just led me to imaging so i find that obviously my i think my strength is in capturing an image that we can learn from and and the only thing i was missing was 
visible light. You know, I was just always working in different scales and I, I really was just missing buying a camera. And I bought a camera and I started carrying it around and then I, you know, little by little became obsessed with it. And then it became almost like a form of expression. I have an accent, you know, and, you know, I didn't learn English until I was much older. So talking is not my, my sweet point, I guess, and writing is not my strong point. So showing was my way to both excel in science and, and I guess outdoor exploration. So work with what you got. Oh, that, that's super cool. So you mentioned that you didn't learn English till later. Do you want to tell, talk a little bit about your journey on how you, on your journey on coming to the, how you got here in your state, that you got to the States? I mean, cause you're, you are not old and you have done a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, you know, I grew up in Cuba. Uh, my family is, uh, not communist uh so we always were a little bit rebellious and i grew up in a rebellious house like for example my mother always had a bag to go in case a boat left and she tried many times and most of the time she will fail and then i will see her in the morning i was like oh you didn't go yeah you didn't leave great moving on um she was able to get a visa to colombia and i followed along years later so she went there by herself no money she picked herself up she's an architect so she was really hardworking and was able to like make enough money to bring me to Colombia and then in Colombia I got to Colombia in 2000 which I don't know if you can think about what's happening in Colombia in 2000 but it's probably one of the worst situations I, I mean the drug the drug cartel was out of control the amount of violence was out of control there were car bombs. there was a car bomb at the school I was at like things like that where it just even if you're not in this epicenters of violence, it was impossible to escape it. And um, so eventually we, in 2001, I realized, you know, we all realized we have to go. And, and this I, I am not proud of. Um, we hired somebody to steal a passport from a tourist. So we got, uh, that, and that person probably saved my life, you know? And um, I came here first. Um, because you know it's difficult to coordinate with all the people who are loading the planes with illegals. I came here illegally with a fake passport, and um, in the plane, I, you know, you cut up your passport, whatever, you flush it down the toilet, and then you arrived here with your Cuban citizen, uh, Cuban birth certificate, and claim Cuban asylum. And uh, the process is that you go to prison, and then they put you in a state of probation. And if you pass the state of probation, you can apply for citizenship. And uh, um, I got here in September of 2001. So I watched 9-11 from prison. So just, just one of those like, like tick marks, but you know, something I didn't even understood at the time because I came from such a violent country right before I arrived here. So I didn't understand how having two planes knocked down, like two, you know, having buildings knocked down, what was a big deal. That's something like didn't even face me because I was coming from a place where car bombs were going off every day, you know? And, um, and kidnappings were happen happening all the time. And it took me a while to sort of like get into the American mentality and, and all of that. But after five years, I was able to get into school. I learned English when I was like about 15. I lived in Miami because it's a rite of passage for Cubans. Then I went to uh, Los Angeles and um, finished my high school there and got into UCLA for astrophysics. And that really helped me get citizenship 
and you know and i worked for nasa like very shortly after i got my citizenship so that was that was that was really great so i got i was able to get my security clearance and all that stuff so it was just like a lot of events of changing from like an illegal immigrant to like being in prison to working for nasa it was it was interesting just just yeah how how old were you when you were in prison uh, i was 15 uh, that's i mean the fact that we that you were put in prison at 15 years old is just shocking and awful so i'm very sorry i went to a to a prison called Chrome in Florida. Yeah, uh, I, we, we were able to bring most of my family here to similar manners. Uh, my cousin came in through Mexico and, and things like that. You know, there are outlets, but you know, we were lucky to, to come in and we are super lucky that we came in at the right time in some ways, because the wet foot, dry foot is no longer a thing. So like if I were to come in today, um, I wouldn't have the same privilege, you know, privilege looks different to in different situations, but I, I you know, I, I did have the privilege to be able to come in. Yeah. And, and where, where did you live in Colombia when you were there? Bogota. Okay. Yeah. Bogota. Yeah. I, w- I went to Medellin in 2007, 2008. Um, How was, was you know what it was honestly, it was one of the most amazing trips I had. Um, mostly so because it had changed. Great. Oh, they are. And it had changed so much so fast. Does that make sense? And I yeah. still, you know, look back on that time and whenever I'm down on where the country is or I ever am worried about things, I remember that, you know, Medellin went from the murder capital of the world to, to safer than cities in the United States, lower murder rates and whatever. And it did it in a matter of what, like five, six years. You know, I felt perfectly safe when I was in Medellin. I mean, there were police everywhere, like everywhere. <laughs> So, I mean, it was, that might've been part of it, but I mean. They have worked so much in Colombia and and Peru. Think of Peru. I mean, Peru has has gone through some of the craziest political changes and, uh, you know, their turnaround, look at tourism in Peru. I mean, it's unbelievable how much some of these countries are going, are turning around. Some of them for the worst, like Venezuela, you know, Venezuela used to be the country that Colombians went to. And then now is you're getting tons of Venezuelans in, in yeah. Colombia. Mm-hmm. So they, they did they did it in very smart ways as well. Like the cable cars, you know, going up into the favelas. You know, there was no easy access for police to get up there to fight crime. There was no easy way for the poor people towards the top of the favelas to get down into the towns. You know, so they built the cable car systems and it made it easier for police to get up. It made it easier for people to escape. You know, they opened up schools, libraries. I mean, it was kind of a really amazing thing to see in a way to see that, like, again, it was a very hopeful experience for me to see, like, how fast, how you can go from that bad to, like, you also, you know, it's like, oh, wow. It's a it's, matter of days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's it, incredible. It, it, yeah. So that Who was you the- have in power is is definitely I you know, one of the things when when I'm, I'm going to speak, I'm not I'm not a Trump supporter, obviously, um, I, I'm pretty much everything that Trump stands against. I'm a woman. I'm an illegal immigrant. I'm a scientist and I'm an outdoor advocate. I am. He is personally like my biggest enemy. So uh, in in many ways, when when Trump got elected, a lot of people were saying it doesn't really matter who the president is. And I was like, no, it does. It, it absolutely does. And I've been in situations, you know, I've never really, Obama has been probably the only really great president I've had in my entire life. I grew up under Castro and then I went to Colombia where there was pretty much the country was run by a drug cartel. Then I got here and it was 9-11 and, and Bush trying to figure out a war when the men can't probably figure out too many things. And then it was just, Obama was the only sane president I've had and I saw how 
that made such a huge difference. And I think a lot of people hadn't had that experience and, and understand how quickly a country can go down and how quickly a country can recover as well. So I think that um, this has been definitely a huge lesson for Americans. We'll stay positive about that recovery piece. Um, so, I mean, you obviously, so speaking of like recovering things that we're going to be recovering from, um, you obviously have a global perspective and you have a passion for travel. And at the beginning of this year, you had two big adventures, one of which we I kind of mentioned in the intro and in that um, you were on Aconcagua and were the first Cuban woman to summon Aconcagua. I want, I want you to tell a little bit about that story and how you discovered that that's what you were doing. So I, I went to film uh, an influencer try to summon Aconcagua. Um, at base camp, my influencer threw in the towel. Um, he was able to porter with me to camp one and then he had to go down. Um, both, one, we, we were not really working together very well. Um, we were unguided. We were going through the Polish route. We were not doing the normal route. Um, this was, um, he wasn't really mentally prepared for what is to climb mountaineering, uh, something. I, I think he would have done really well if we would have had a bunch of porters and, and, and guides to have helped him. I think that should have been his first big mountain uh, experience. Um, but we chose to go um, bare bones, the real way is just all of our, I had all the camp stuff for a 20 day expedition on top of camera gear. I was carrying probably more weight than he was. And, and, and we, we really tried to put our, and he was exhausted and I want to say, I think it, it was over his head. And even by the time we got to base camp, the medic, because you have to pass a medical test, the medic came up to me, it was like, I'm not really sure that he's in good condition. And, and, I, and I agreed, you know, and, um, but um, the issue there became like, he was really stubborn about what he should be doing. Uh, you know, he wouldn't take the recommendations of drink more water, if you're feeling sick, you need to take medication is to help you not to like, I'm not trying, you know, I'm giving you something to help you breathe. Um, you know, little things like as soon as you get to a place, you set your camp and then you get out of your tent. Because as soon as you go into your tent, it's really difficult to move and do anything else because you're exhausted. So there were all these little things happening and the, the filming time became, you know, smaller and smaller because it was harder to have a dynamic when somebody's struggling like that. And, um, so he decided to not do it and i decided to keep going so um i sent him back to base camp and Aconcagua has a lot of support you know he um i speak spanish i was able to introduce him to a lot of people in the camp and i, I went ahead and i just did, did expedition with a three-person tent uh and all the cookware and all the gas myself i i had a lot of weight but um i was feeling super strong i i I felt so good every day and um, I got there probably the last um, weather window that I would have had for over a week. I still did the summit in a complete whiteout but just frozen but um, but, but I did it and, and it was and I got to the top and there was um, the summit police was there because some guy the day before was a beautiful day and people had pushed themselves over the limit and some guy had to be carried out of the mountain uh, in a bag um, after having issues and pushing themselves so they, they were going to close the summit uh, at 3 p.m so if any climbers arrive 
you know, faster than that, that will turn you around. And when I got to the summit police, you know, the summit police were excited. I was just by myself. I was like the only person that was really by themselves. And um, I started talking to them. They realized I was Cuban. And I had no idea that there was a record to be broken. Uh, so when I got back to base camp a day, few days later, I got a call from the police. And they were like, oh, we just want to let you know that you are the first, we checked the records, you are the first Cuban woman to summit Aconcagua, and you are the only Cuban person who summit through the Polish. And I was like, great, you know? <laughs> uh, by the time I, I arrived at, at, at the city, uh, some mountaineers have already written like articles and stuff like that. So that was a very interesting experience. And I, I have never really gone out to, to, to break a record, but that was, a nice little reward, you know, and, and it goes to show that not a lot of people have had the luck I've had to be able to escape communism, travel to a place where they've been able to engage in this kind of sports and, and put themselves in those places. So it's a big day for especially Cuban women, you know. Now, had you done much climbing before this? Like, where did you learn to climb or how did you first get into it? Yeah, so uh, I really like big mountains and I like glaciers and, and, you know, climate change is a big interest of mine. And my first experience, I was always really active, but my first experience, somebody asked me to go climb Bernier. That was the first mountain I really climbed. I mean, I had done some stuff in the Sierras, but like I was unprepared. I was always wearing, I carried cans of stuff. Like I, I wasn't really thinking of, I wasn't in the outdoor community. Um, and I was so bad. You know, I was so bad in, in Bernier and I realized that I just had so much more to learn. And I was a little bit was a little bit of embarrassment. I made it to the summit. I don't know how, uh, but I made it to the summit, and, and um, I probably shouldn't have. And that really kind of sparked an interest in in going to these places. But I really liked the experience of the expedition. Um, but I don't really have a lot of mountaineering friends, and, and I still haven't. And I like to travel slightly different than most people. So a lot of them became how to become a self, a solo mountaineer, which is very tricky. So I took a lot of courses in, you know, rescue, climbing, uh, you know, snow conditions, all of those things. And I started just little by little pushing my limits. And so I've done a lot of the 14ers uh, in North America. And then I started going out, out of the country for, you know, I've climbed some of the big peaks in Mexico. I've climbed in uh, the Tibetan Plateau in China. That was like where I went to my first 6,000 meters. And that was an unbelievable experience because it was just me. For half the time was a donkey and some guy who I never understood. And uh, then they, I summited with a man who I never even knew really his name. Um, we had no common understanding of anything, but you know, with hands and like, I used to use my, uh, my emojis on my notepad to show him what I was talking about and, and that worked out. So like, you know, little experiences like that really kind of changed how I view mountaineering. And then I started heading down heavily to South America where climbing is cheap and uh, you can do a lot of stuff because Nepal is really expensive. And, you know, I'm not made of money. So um, I don't have $50,000 to pay somebody to take me to an 8,000 meter mountain. So I did a lot. I've done a lot of 6,000 uh, meters just because that's really accessible in South America. In South America, there are so many of them and they cost, the permit costs uh, 
well, some of them are free and the most I've ever paid was a thousand dollars. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Again, Dos Equis, most interesting woman in the world. Come on. <laughs> How are you not doing it? How has this not happened already? Yeah. I'm going to make you have the call and uh, maybe you can get me a deal. <laughs> I'll buy you a Dos Equis afterwards. Okay, Dos Equis Amber. I I don't like the regular lager. It's got to be the Amber. So Eileen, I I know that uh, you were doing a bikepacking trip through Mm -hmm. Patagonia earlier this year. And tell me a little bit about what happened. And I think the pandemic hit while you were down there. Is that right? I think life hit when I was (laughs) down there. So I had just come back from, I left to Aconcagua on January 1st. I arrived in in Seattle, which I I was living in in Washington uh, earlier this year, in February 1st, which means like I hadn't been here the entire January. When I got off the mountain of Aconcagua at the end of January, somebody told me there's a virus killing people in China. And I was like, okay, what's new? Um, so like, you know, there's like some bad thing. I was like, okay, all right. But, and, and then I didn't see much more concern outside of China at this point. It was very localized to China. Um, I had two weeks uh, to get a bike because I've never backpacked in my life, uh, get all the gear. Um, I had, we were working with over 10 brands and um, the whole point was to do 3000 kilometers, try across Patagonia from uh, Bariloche all the way to Punta Arenas. So it was ambitious, especially for your first backpacking trip, but I was just acclimated. I was in great shape because I just came back from Akunkawa. So like I was, I was, I was in a good place for it. Um, February 15, um, I decided that before, you know, we go uh, to this trip, I'm going to go to Texas and see my, my grandfather and my mom and all that. I usually do this when I'm about to be gone for three months. And I, this is when things start to get a little bit fussy where like, you know, you have the huge outbreaks now in Italy and I'm like, okay, well, this is not SARS. This is much worse, but America was still kind of confident that this wasn't a big deal. And I knew I was going to have, I was like, I'm going to have trouble coming back. And that's what I had in mind. I'm going to struggle coming back, but I don't care. I'm going to be in Patagonia. And if not, I'll go to Colombia and spend some time in Medellin and, and just wait it out. Right. I didn't like, I was one excited and two stupid and just stupid. I, you know, I, I think in February, like almost no one could have seen this coming. And I was just writing on the high that I was about to bike back, you know, Patagonia. And I got to Patagonia the day of the first fatality in the United States. And that just set the tone for my entire bikepacking trip. Um, by the time um, we were, we cover about a thousand kilometers before the, before the pandemic really just got to us. So we did a third of the trip um, and it was um, amazing. I mean, like, I really wanna go back and finish it, but they decided to close the border between Chile and Argentina. Now in Patagonia, uh, half of Chile, you can't traverse by car, is by ferries, and you have to cross into Argentina to be able to be on a road. So in this crossing, in, in this entire trajectory, we were supposed to cross the border five times, which if you are already imagining during COVID times, no one's crossing the border five times. So um, I, 
had made it into Argentina before they closed the border. And then uh, I had a issue, I had an accident with my drone where it cut my face and I had like blood and, and all this stuff cut up. And I ended up, um, we ended up getting a place to like crash for four days before my face heals because I don't want to like bike with a bunch of stuff just falling in an open wound in my face. You know, that sounds like a highly uncomfortable. Hey, I've been, I've been saying for years, Terminator is real, right? That's Terminator like is your real. drone became self-aware. Your drone became <laughs> self-aware and attacked you. I don't, I don't know what you yeah. did to piss it off, but that's what I think happened. Sorry. I didn't it was, uh, yeah, I think it was after me. Uh, it's been that type of year. Um, and while we were there, they, they, those four days were crucial because the Argentinian police came up and was like, you have to stay here until a certain day. You cannot travel outside until you meet, you meet your quarantine period. And this was going by my passport for my last crossing. I meet that day. I call the consulate. Am I able to travel? Am I able to get out of here? They say, yes. I go outside. And then the, the, the person said, I will watch out because I think a lot of these rules are open to interpretation. And I was like, that is not how law works, but okay. Um, and the first uh, crossing in the interstate, the police uh, stopped me and they were like, we're taking you to the border with Chile. You have to go out. You have to leave. So uh, squirted us to the border of Chile. Um, we got into Chile. Great. We're still thinking that we're gonna make it. Like we're just stupid, and at this point, like the numbers are just going up by the week. Um, and we get there, and the first night that we stay there, the town center hall, whatever, catches on fire. The town's without electricity. And it's just every day from then on just becomes. Um, it's just chasing us away, and, and I figure like there was there was one place to escape the pandemic was Patagonia. I was so wrong. Um, and then it was very difficult to, we couldn't get back to the main cities with the airport because there was no road. So, and we couldn't cross back into Argentina. So at this point, um, we are driving to, um, we're down in a car driving to this tiny little airport to see if we can uh, find something. No, no planes. There's a ferry. 10 a 10 hour ferry that will take me to the ocean to the nearest place that has a functioning airport by the time i arrived to the town with a functioning airport 10 hours later in this ferry ride which is full of travelers who have are just abandoning the the ship pretty much is like take us in this boat to whatever airport you can and they know that you know your days are counted because they're starting to close all the borders so everybody knows that they're they're about to be trapped somewhere and by the time I arrived, my grandfather has died. And my grandfather was my world. And I was like, I'm, I'm heading back. Like, I'm trapped in the middle of Patagonia. I don't know when I'm going to make it back. My family's going through all of this. I'm, I'm leaving. I had two days to find a bike box. And I spent the last two days in Chile digging through dumpsters, looking for cardboard. So that was an interesting idea. And then I was actually able to find a plane ticket and I left the last week that people actually got to travel back and things have gotten so out of control in that area. Some of the people that I knew were in Peru and they declare martial law in Peru and like women were allowed to travel at certain, like they were allowed to go to the grocery store at certain hours or you know, men at a different hour. So it became really militarized really quickly. So I'm really, I, I left at the right time. 
Um, so I flew to Texas uh, and we cremated my grandfather and that's my COVID story. I bought his like disabled van, um, you know, his, his old van, um, tore out the back, made a bed, put the bike in it and drove to Washington, uh, Washington state. And that's two months later. So like pretty much my entire bike trip was only a thousand, thousand kilometer bike trip. And then everything else was just dealing with police and trying to figure out how to get back. That's crazy. Um, just side note, TV recommendation. If anyone is, is anyone else watching the long way up, um, that's the motorcycle series with Ewan McGregor. They've done three of them. They just did the third one and it's, it's great, but they, they go the, they did it in all electric bikes. They go from Patagonia all the way back up to Los Angeles through South and Central America. It's, it's very good. It's great for like when you're stuck inside. Yeah, they go. Yeah, they did went through the Panama Canal. Yeah. Sorry for that tangent. I mean, do you think you'll go back and attempt it again at some point or because you have a little you have a little bit on the way. So I've kept filming. Yeah, my, my life has changed drastically. I started with like Aconcagua, followed by this crazy trip and then I got to Washington, um, got pregnant, moved to Bend in the middle of a pandemic, bought a house. And now I'm just like, what's happening in my life is the most difficult, the most different is, is ever turned around. But, um, but you know, there are new changes. I, I am hoping to finish the trip at some point. I, I did film um, all this stuff to the, to the airports. I even filmed police and all of that stuff. So there, there is a fair amount of material there. Um, I think it would be an inter- interesting mini documentary to just going back and finish it, you know, maybe with the third, with the third person. Um, so, so now's the time in the, in the program where we, you and I talk about photography and Severia <laughs> and Jeff go get a sandwich. <laughs> um, um, so, uh, so I guess you've already meant, you mentioned before we did it. So you, you shoot Fuji. Um, what kind of, what are you using? Like, like an X-T4, X-T3? What kind of, what, what's your, uh, what's your kit like? What do you like to shoot? I do the X-T3. I used to shoot Nikon and mm-hmm. full frame and I uh, got really sick of it. And I wasn't shooting fashion or, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, like, I didn't have the problem with, like, clients don't like, you know, um, mirrorless cameras. And um, so I wanted something that was rugged and light. Like, the last thing I want to do in Aconcagua is carry a big camera. I want a camera that if, you know, I've got my camera wet and just put it in a pin outside and let it air dry. And it keeps on going. That's the kind of camera I want. And um, so finding all, and, and not only that, the video of the Fuji X-T3, it is phenomenal. It's just, Fuji is absolutely beautiful. I really like the color space of it, uh, if we're gonna really get down to it. Um, I, I don't particularly like Canon. I hate the color. I think everything is green in Canon. Uh, so I don't like Canon. And, and Sony didn't really have a good system that was mirrorless until after the Fuji was very established. So um, my, my, my thought was like, I already have everything Fuji because I had the X-T1 and I had two X-T2s because one I fretted uh, X-T2s and then I moved into the X-T3 and now I have an X-T3 and X-T2 um, and I have the entire lens array. So like, you know, changing cameras, the body is the least of your expenses is everything else that comes with it. So, um, then Sony started releasing the good mirrorless ones and I've heard great things about it. Um, I'm just not in any hurry to leave 
Fuji. I have had a great experience with Fuji. I love how it looks. I think it looks different than a lot of the landscape photography I see out there. And I, I really like that. And the fact that it's just rugged, that is, you know, weatherproof and that it weighs nothing. It weighs nothing. And the thing with the Sony is like the, the body is very small and, and compact. The lenses, not so much. No, tell I me about figure, it. <laughs> yeah, I figure that uh, by the time that Sony really um, pinpoints the mirrorless uh, lenses and do all that lightweight stuff, uh, Fuji will be f- way further ahead. So, and that is why I stuck to Fuji and didn't move into Sony. So I, I have kind of like, cause I was a very early adopter. I actually ordered the X-T1 before it even came out. And I, I shot that for a good two, three years and it was fantastic. Great camera. I love it. I mean, the thing I love about Fuji too, that some people talk, I think it's the most fun camera to shoot with just the way the controls are set up. Like a lot of the controls are actually on the outside of the camera. So it's you feel like, yeah, so you feel like yeah. you're actually shooting it, not having to go into like sub menus and, and do all of that to, to fix it. Um, I um, hate having to do this. Yeah. To at anything no, uh, yeah. so being able to control the yeah. entire camera with it, it attached to my face practically and i just yeah. have to move all the knobs inside and once you get used to them and i think it's really intimidating for some people at first you get this camera and everything is sort of manual with all these crazy dials once you get used to it you know exactly where you are like you don't yeah. have to think twice about where the knobs are and it just becomes kind of right and there's a great auto auto mode on it too so you can just turn it to auto and it'll it'll do that for you but it's a great way to camera to learn with funny enough i recommend fuji's more than anything and i shoot sony um i kind of it was funny was i was an early adopter on sony too i got uh, the first version of their a7 and a7s which was their crazy video one and and it was great for video but it was a horrible it wasn't there the camera wasn't ready but then i moved once the a7 I actually worked at Sony, um, not in the photography thing, A7R2. They, I feel I got like the until A7R2. the last one, they didn't yeah. figure out, uh, they didn't figure out like the jitter. There was always jitter in all their videos uh, when I. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I haven't noticed that. But I, I got the A7R2 and that was like a huge leap forward and like everything. You know, it was like 42 megapixels. And, and now I have the A7R4, which is 62. And the only bummer with the Fujis and the smaller, you, as a landscape, you can't really get, you know, you're still, I think, what, 24. So I'm kind of a whore but for you know, megapixels now. There's something now. I learned by shooting um, spacecraft uh-huh. cameras, which uh-huh. are one megapixel. Yeah. Uh, you know, your phone camera is now doing better than some of the cameras that are on yeah. board the spacecrafts because they have their cameras since the 90s. Yeah. Um, is that the best way to take a landscape is to take several photos and stitch them together. Well, I do that too. <laughs> I do that with 62. I do that with 62 megapixel shots. So, you know, <laughs> you so now I only hard? have to take three. Now I have to take three, you know, three pictures instead of 12. So, 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 you know, yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, the Fuji is just such a great system. It's also much more approachable because it's a smaller sensor. Everything is more affordable. So you can buy their lenses are amazing. So that is a great system. And I recommend it to everyone. I think the 56 millimeter is, is, is uh, the big seller of that camera. Yeah. Have no. we bored everybody yet? I don't know. We probably have. I'm sure there's like a very few number of people that are really loving this. I'm like taking notes. Jeff is I'm, like, I'm like 56 millimeter. She's lens. writing stuff down. No, I know. She's, she's making a shopping list. I know. I totally <laughs> so no that's so cool that's super cool that you you picked it up i'm i'm excited i'm gonna go and like cyber even though you're not posting to it much anymore i'm gonna go and cyber stalk your instagram account i'm really excited to see all of your work i i love the i love the the science element to it as well i think that's i think that's fantastic
fantastic. And I haven't really figured out uh, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot this year is how to use my voice and, and photography more for that type of education. It's very difficult. It is really, really hard, especially when often you're alone and you're on a mountain and, you know, it's not the easiest place to shoot. It's not the easiest place to, to capture. So, uh, you know, I'm still trying to figure out my, the best way to work with it. And I have so much to figure out in that sense. That's probably why I'm not working with those Equis. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, uh, but speaking of most interesting women in the world material, now let's talk about NASA because you work for NASA as well. Um, so what was that experience like? What did you do there and how did you get into it? Um, well, I was in astrophysics and during my bachelor's, so it was just kind of the natural place to go. Um, and yeah, I got a I got a job at the Cassini spacecraft working with the imaging science subsystem. Um, we had Carolyn Porco, who's now one of the science advisors, for example, for Star Trek and things like that. So there was a lot of people doing other stuff with their with their science background. There is a huge, huge, huge team. Like people, uh, you know. Uh, just just my team was like seven people uh and there were 15 20 teams so when you when you just doing one tiny thing requires 200 300 people orchestrated together so that was definitely the definition of teamwork and also paperwork because when you work for the government there's a lot of paperwork um and a lot of politics and and you know um when you're funded by you know government funds there's a lot of politics involved and things like that but it, the the mission itself is unbelievable. I mean, like being able to see Saturn and um, for example, one of my favorite flybys I did there was the Enceladus moon where we saw the big geysers and is one of, it was really surprising to see um, all these moons with, you know, actually active geological, you know, geologically active and seeing, seeing, you know, geysers and in the moon in Saturn was, um, was unbelievable. And, um, you know, and, being able to be part of that and being able to figure out how do we take a taking a photo in space is not easy. Uh, keeping your cameras running is not easy. Voltage, temperature controls of all of that are is extremely complicated and a lot of coding. So it was not just challenging, it was um, a lot of engineering, but really rewarding to see the images. And then we, you know, we have to stitch all these images together and all of that. And then that's also kind of fun. You, you get to learn the mappings of all these moons. It's great. Uh, I, I wanted to, to follow up with you on something you mentioned earlier about uh, citizen science. And mm -hmm. you have a really interesting sort of background that kind of combines a lot of different, you know, a love for the outdoors and adventure, photography, the science. What are some examples that you've seen of citizen science that really work well and that, that other people for, for our listeners who might not be familiar with that, you know, where can they learn more about that and how, how can they get involved? Well, the, the funny thing about citizen science is that you can do it anywhere, right? Like almost every place you walk into has some interesting scientific uh, or archeological or even cultural aspect to it. And I think that we often um, explore without really looking at what can we learn from this place. We, we often just think about, um, oh, I saw this video, like, or are there amenities? Are there, is there restaurants nearby? Is there food nearby? Am I going to be comfortable with the language? And this mode of traveling 
it only leads you to consumerism. It doesn't really lead you to exploration. So going there with how you organize your priorities on what's an, like a meaningful experience to you, I think is, is really the first thing that you should do. If you like archaeology, there is, you know, you can go to the UNESCO World Heritage site and look at the list of top archaeological sites. And that alone can put you through hours and hours of rabbit holes through Wikipedia and, you know, send you in some incredible, incredible trips. Um, I also think that, you know, and, and I will be very blunt about this. Um, I also think the way that we, we talk about, you know, we carry out information at, in this day and age, uh, it's really, um, is becoming, I think, a security threat to this country, but also is becoming an, an educational threat to most people. Um, and and by, what I mean by that is that the amount of misinformation and noise that we see in every field is extremely high. And I think that prevents people from being excited about science because science has kind of noticed that and taken a step back and removed themselves from it instead of figuring out how to overcome it. And, and, and this is largely the science community's fault. Um, because, you know, you can't control how everyone talks about it, but you can control how you present your science. Um, most real science is being talked about in journals where you have to pay or you have to be a scientist to understand. It's in language that almost no one can really comprehend unless you're in it. And, uh, and then popular science does a lot of things that are misleading. For example, the Venus claim that there was possible life on Venus. They put this huge, huge uh, title to it, an article that was quite, mis quite misleading. Uh, two weeks later, they realized that the measurement was probably wrong, but that paper was only published to the scientific community and it was in follow through in the front page of the New York Times. And now people are out there thinking that there are people and things living in the atmosphere of Venus. And these are uh, ways in which we are really misleading the country into believing a hype more than believing the, what you're actually reading. And this is going on socially, you know, a lot of these movements are lost in just trends. And what we do is create big headlines instead of creating real information. So it really is, to, and I, as somebody who's trying to figure out how to communicate citizen science, I'm telling you that we are facing really huge issues with figuring out how to, how to speak about science well. And there just aren't enough figures out there of people working in science who are dedicating themselves to citizen science because there isn't enough people hiring people to talk about communication. Like they're, they're you know, Dosek is not really looking for a scientist to talk about the world in a different way. Um, you know, we have people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, a gem, you know, somebody who was like, I know that my voice, I, I can talk to people about this. I know I can, I can have comedians come and get involved. I love that I have to bring a comedian to everything because scientists just don't sell anything. It's like, you never see Neil deGrasse Tyson without a comedian right next to him. Cause like, we're just not fun. We're just not fun people. And we really haven't figured out how to make science as entertaining as we should be, you know, and you look at all the David Attenborough, like document, document, you know, documentaries. And by the end of them, you just want to like, you're just depressed. They're just so depressing, you know? So it's like, yeah, I mean, like we have all this talk about, uh, you know, citizen science, but we haven't really figured out how to 
put it in a way that is one, hopeful, two, informative, and three, really uh, digestible. It's kind of funny. Two things. First of all, it's what you kind of mentioned it yourself when you were talking there, Eileen. But one of the things that popped in my mind, I grew up in Davis, you know, UC Davis, a huge science community. So I grew up around like lots of scientists. And all I could think of is wonderful, nice, incredibly brilliant people with pretty bad personalities. So like, like, so like I think that's obviously, like you said, has been part of the problem. And, and the, unfortunately, the Neil deGrasse Tysons are, are few and far between. Second, I never thought in my life I'd see science be politicized in, in such a way where, where you know, it's it's been pushed or lied to and said that it's something with an agenda when, in, you know, by people that have an agenda. hoping that science is more politicized. But that's a different topic. How we politicize science is actually really important because science and politics do go together. For example, climate change, we do not have somebody in the Supreme Court with a good environmental justice background. We are underrepresented with some of the biggest threats we have coming up on Earth, and we have a government that lacks scientists. Politics should be very intertwined with science as well as everything else. And that's really how you get citizen science. Science should be in everything we do because it's just how the world operates, right? There's nothing that we do these days that we don't use some form of scientific achievement. Like think what we're doing right now. Can we do this without science? Absolutely not. Like almost every part of our life has been it has been affected by science. So this pushback against science is, is completely ridiculous. And the fact that we can't make all the things that we're making more accessible to people is where the problem is. And it should be in your politics. Absolutely should be in your politics. Politics should reflect science all the way through. And, and science does reflect politics. You know, um, a lot of the PhDs, are, for example, my PhD was funded by the DOE, um, you know, they're usually the people who fund physics and who fund math and stuff like that. So they're, they're worlds that are very intertwined together and, and, and they should work together better. I think the hard part is when you have an administration that is anti-science and then science is just struggling to make themselves valid. And we look desperate. We, we, we are desperate at this point. We're like, we have this vaccine. Will people take it? And now we don't even know if people want to take it. Like we just there's all these things that we're struggling as scientists is like we don't really know how to communicate with the public and a lot of it is because it's not in politics if it was actually more politicized we would have an easier access to educating our citizens much better about what's going on in the world and, and let me tell you many people just can't are not going to randomly care about the planet this thing that we're doing with climate change People are not gonna, people don't care. People care about having their cars. People care about having their stuff. So unless we can't change how we educate and, and how we speak of the planet and how we bring that into every, into politics, how we bring it into medicine, how we bring it into all of that, climate change is, is not going to be even slowed in. Like, it's just gonna get worse and worse. And I, and I think that, that that's really what where the big problem is. I, I, I think politics is actually the, the place that science should be in every, in every politician should know enough science. I, I should say that. I think I what I actually agree with you. I think yeah. that the, uh, where it gets dangerous is when you have people who are saying that science is just an opinion. It's one of several opinions, right. you know, and that's yeah. the part that um, I think Jason was talking about, you know, 
Yeah, I, I meant anti-science politicized. I, obviously, I, good like so you look at like NASA is a perfect example. Not just the fact that we made it to the moon, but all the amazing the things that we live that we had digital cameras, you know, CD player, all the things in our lives that came out of the technologies developed for that is amazing. It's amazing for the economy and everything. I meant the people. It's, it's politicized, politicized in the okay. sense where I've never seen a politicized. I've never seen like a legitimate large body of of like anti-science, if that makes sense. I've never. Seen seen the notion that science kind of pu putting it almost on par as a religion as a belief system i've never I, seen that in yeah. like a massive moment that's what i meant by it being politicized not that it, it shouldn't be positively politicized that would be great you know but yeah so I that's okay that you can call me out really i don't mind strange i think there's something really strange about what we also address politics like we don't care this thing there's like how many people just don't care about politics how do you not care about politics it affects you every day uh so i do think that the same level I think what's happening is at the same level of disrespect and uh, conspiracy theories and such that have been going in politics have transferred into science, but it's pretty much the same attitude. It's like people have taken these two things that really govern their lives and have taken a step against them. And I really think that's what's going on is almost a rebellion against the things that do dominate your life. And science, whether you admit it or not, it dominates your everyday. And politics, whether you want it or not, it dominates your day. So I think that these rebellions are, are really to resist change and, and progress. And um, I think it's a very conservative um, thought. And I think because by definition, a conservative party is meant to fight change, right? It, it, that's really the definition of, uh, of a conservative, is somebody who wants to preserve uh, an, old, an older life instead of, you know, a progressive whose main focus just by definition of the word is to progress. So I think that that's why we're seeing this becoming a partisan issue, yeah. which is stupid. It shouldn't be, but, no. uh, but it, but it is. Also, I think going back to something you mentioned early on is like social media and the social media role in this. The problem with it is, is if if you you're you want to not believe in vaccines, you want to not believe in science, the way that social media is set up with the algorithms and whatever, most of what you're going to see is going to be things that reinforce your 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 searches, your whatever. So you're probably not getting the other side of the story. You're not you know, people aren't getting that. And that's something that's obviously changed a lot yeah. from social media and, and something that we really need to address and fix. Failing, yeah. Jeff. This is it goes back to where citizen science is, is failing is that citizen science is not being plugged in in all of those outlets in all of those worlds. So it has become something of like a trend or just for a few people. And, and that's that's where the biggest issue is. And I think this is the biggest problem with communicating citizen science and where people can learn is the fact that we don't plug it in into everything. It should be in everything. But, uh, you know that 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 question answered your question better than i could so i mean i think one of the things is how do we create generations behind us that are excited about science and have that curiosity and looking at it and i know eileen one of the projects you're working on right now is a is a science or space game um do you want to talk a little bit about that i mean because like what a better way to like get kids and people excited right because i mean I feel like there's generations that are behind us that they're they're the hope, you know, and we need to make sure that that science is exciting and sexy for them and like cool. cool. Where the backlash is, I've I've gotten as now a, a pregnant person is and, and a climate activist. People are like, why are you having a kid? Are you not somebody who like cares about the planet? I was like, first of all, <laughs> if the only people who are going to reproduce are the people who don't care about the planet, we are in serious trouble. 
second of all, if I have the finances and the ability to educate, I believe my kid could make a difference. And I'm, I'm not going to raise a kid who lives in, you know, in trends and fashions. That's not really what I'm going to, I'm going to try to pass on some of the best things that I could as a scientist. And, and, and two, if we just give up, we're not going to keep trying. If, if we're afraid to like live, you know, have personal things outside of climate change, we are not going to move forward. It's just going to practically saturate us. Um, and, and then, so to, to go back to that question, and it's like, how do we engage with the youth and all of that? Um, one, I, I'm, I'm thinking of, of possibly doing a show that talks about how to travel with children and how to educate children to travel. Um, where it's very much targeted to how do you educate your children outside of academia? And, and I'm, I'm thinking about this. Maybe I'll pitch it to Dos Equis, although I don't know if the Boost <laughs> Company will, will pitch for a children's show. But um, yeah, so I, I am working now for um, the video game called Elite Dangerous. Elite Dangerous is a huge, huge game, which I had no idea about. Um, and practically they've worked with some teams from NASA to do a, a really realistic and scientific depiction of the Milky Way galaxy. And people go and travel and, and, and you're in, in a spaceship. And like when they, they, they reach out to me to, in Facebook, like not even like, I barely use Facebook. And I was like, this is a scam. And um, the guy was like, well, the other speakers are like William Chatner. The other speakers for it are like Ben Sprinter from, from, from Star Trek. And I was like, what is going on? And I started looking at this video game and I was like, okay, they're either trying to fool me, but what they wanted to do is wanted to create a character that was educational, but also that could talk about this space stuff with confidence. So um, they made a character called Crusoe for me. And now I am this AI that's on the ship with people and I'm telling them where to go. And I'm this like sort of hipster um, <laughs> AI, you know, like I had to do a little bit of acting and it's, it's been a lot of days in the studio of me. I have, I'm working with a British team who hates how I say S's in the front, like, you know, Spanish with like the E and they're like, we spend hours just editing your E's in front of the S's. So it's been definitely <laughs> a lot of work with this, with this group. Um, but we just also made a deal with Star Wars squadrons and things like that. So we're injecting all this educational content in video games. And for example, uh, somebody wants to go see, for example, the the supergalactic black hole at the center of the galaxy called Sagittarius A, they'll talk to me in the spaceship and I'll go there and I'll tell them what a black hole is, how galaxies are formed. They can ask me about dark matter. They can ask me about all these things. They can ask me, uh, you know, take me to this area of the sky and tell me what's cool around here that I can go visit. And some of these people have spent, you know, they spend days traveling because they, they have like warp speed and I have to break down the science of warp speed in the game so people can understand what warp speed is, which is interesting because there's actually a lot of science behind warp speed. Um, I didn't realize that until I was like, this is obviously fake, but it's actually good science fiction. But um, yeah, so I, I talk about all those things that we see often in science fiction and it kind of bridges the gap between people who are interested in astronomy and are spending time in the game uh, with kids and stuff like that. And the people who don't, you know, they don't have time to be an astronomer, right? They're, they want to just engage and play a video game. So it's a great place to teach them about, you know, all of that stuff. 
And uh, yeah, we just did something called Galaxipedia, where I talk about different galaxies and different objects in different galaxies. And we talk a lot about Big Bang and such. And I teach them terminology. Like if they don't know what something is, they can ask me and I, and I tell them. So I'm this very interactive AI that travels with, with people, which is really funny. People uh, have taken to my accent. Uh, so now some things I said wrong, I, I, that I say wrong, they just let me have it because they're like, people like it. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. So, so it seems that my character has sort of been shaped by a little bit of who I am as well. That's very cool. Very fun. Do you have any plans for 2021? So I did <laughs> have plans for 2021, but uh, I have learned that in 2020, you shouldn't make plans. Um, but, and, you know, obviously I'm, 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 so I'm delivering and supposedly the first week of February, I have a couple of complications that might set me up for preterm, which is, you know, a little bit stressful, but um, besides surviving the newborn stage, I, I am looking forward to figuring out how to bike pack with a baby. And I am also uh, yeah, trying to figure out like how to teach uh, the kid. And, and one of the things that I was going to do last year was I was going to bike Mount Kilimanjaro with a group of Mozambique cyclists. Um, like, so there, there's all this, it's a team of women that come from different places and all the women who are gonna work on the thing are from Tanzania. And then there's a group of women who live in Mozambique who are bikers and we're racing, all the bikes that we're taking are going to be donated to the village afterwards. Um, so it's not just to involve women and to empower the women who are local to the area is to also to donate bikes and stuff for kids there because they have to walk a fair amount and I get to bike Kilimanjaro. So that's, uh, that might happen. It just depends how, how my birth goes and how recovered I am. Um, if it would happen, it will happen six months after postpartum. So that's, that's a rough recovery. So. <laughs> Uh, so how um, we will, so in the show notes, we'll include the links, but how do people find you if they're curious to learn more about you? I'm, I'm kind of quiet at the moment, but I do have a website that hasn't been updated in a year. Um, and I haven't, yeah, I really haven't included anything from like my latest adventures in there, mostly because I, I, I feel like everything is so saturated right now that it's not the time for me to share and talk about personal accomplishments i feel uncomfortable about it it's so weird um but i am on instagram and uh i check in if you know often enough when something is happening politically i i, I go off the hook and then when something something's <laughs> happening scientifically i also post a few stories so i'm currently just posting more stories about like hey i'm alive that kind of thing um but um yeah instagram and 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 my website, really, I am not gonna release anything anytime soon. I'm not working on any astronomy videos. I am not working on releasing anything for geodesic pictures, which is the other uh, production stuff that we do. With, uh, uh, we were working on malaria and that's gonna be pushed back if not put away entirely. So yeah, all those things. So yeah, Instagram, sometimes on Twitter. Instagram for a historical look of. <laughs> things <laughs> exactly and a really more historical look a uh, historical look it will be like uh my website which is ancient at this point and you'll be back you'll be back someday i will be I, i'm hoping that i can figure out more meaningful ways to communicate i i'm just 
this year was a very sickening year for Instagram. And for example, like, you know, working with influencers and sometimes being the photographer of Insta influencers and things like that definitely makes you realize that there is a, there, there's a lot of noise out there. And um, I, I don't really want to be part of making noise. If any of our listeners work in the marketing department at Dos Equis, we have found the most interesting woman in the world. So, so, so make that happen. Um, thanks, Eileen. That was like, that was amazing. Yeah. Oh, thank, thank you. you thank much. you for having me. Yeah. I enjoyed talking with you. All right, everyone. So we are all here in Jeff's backyard in lovely Bend, Oregon, and we are going to do a taste test of macaroni and cheeses. Um, we have three freeze-dried from what, what I kind of consider at least the three brands that have been around since I've started backpacking. We have Alpine Air and it's called the Forever Young Mac and Cheese. We have Backpackers Pant, which is called Three Cheese Mac and Cheese. And then we have Creamy Macaroni and Cheese from Mountain House. So just as a heads up, we have followed the instructions to a T for each of these and we've timed it so they would all be done at the same time. Um, the Backpackers Pantry takes, uh, the, we did the long ones as well, just to give it the best opportunity to, um, to rehydrate and everything. The Backpackers Pantry was 20 minutes, the Alpine Air was 12 minutes, mm -hmm. and the Creamy Mac and Cheese was um, 10 minutes uh, with a stop halfway through to mix. So we've done all of those, and then when it's all said and done, we're gonna compare these to the, to the worldwide champion of mac and cheese, Kraft macaroni and cheese, <laughs> which we all grew up with, uh, the cheesiest apparently. But we'll see, we'll see if these freeze dried ones hold up. So which one do we wanna try first, guys? I don't know, what do you think? Uh, no preference for me. Let's go with Backpacker's Pantry because that was the one that we poured the water in the first, so let's give it the best chance of being the least cold. All right. Okay, so we are now dishing out the three cheese mac and cheese from, from uh, Backpacker's Pantry. Giving it another stir. I'm sensing some skepticism, and some, from Severia has seen it. We haven't yet to see it, so I'm, I'm sensing so, some skepticism. So it's it's like the cheese is like pretty clumpy. If that makes sense, like yeah. So we have some clumpy yeah, cheese going on. Clumpy cheese, you'll see. Doesn't look bad as you're pouring it into our little our little cups. Yeah. So the cheese is a little clumpy. It's not like an, it's not yeah, like it's an like, even coating of cheese. Yeah. It's kind of like a little. That doesn't mean it's not going to be good. Yeah, so let's see. It's not it's it doesn't taste horrible, though. No, the noodles taste good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's hydrated well. Um, what I'll say is, like, if you get a bite without some cheese clumps in it, it's a little bland, but that's just because pasta is a little bland, so that's yep. not a thing. Mm. But, I'm yeah, I think that's that's okay, right? Yeah. yeah. I think the lesson here, I would uh, maybe knead it a little bit mm -hmm. in the bag while it's, re you know, while it's cooking. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of mix that cheese a little more, but uh, tasty. I like it. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's go with Alpine Air. That was the, the second to last one. Severia is wearing a mask as she distributes this, and we are socially distanced <laughs> for the record, so everyone knows. All right. So this one, yeah. So, so it's interesting. All the veggies are at the top. So yeah. You just stir in veggies. So, so this one has veggies in it. Has some dried, freeze dried vegetables also mixed into it. Some, I think peas, carrots, and yeah. yeah. Celery, maybe I don't know what. The other one would be. Yeah. It's also white. It's yeah. a white cream. It's a white mac and cheese, not a yellow one. Which the backpackers pantry was uh, was a yellow, like a cheddar or American mm. cheese version of mac and cheese. 
Yeah, and it's oh, it looks, also looks nice. Yeah, it's like a fusilli, a fusilli maybe I guess would yeah, be kind of pasta. It's a spiral, yeah, yeah, corkscrew. It's not a macaroni per se. And little bits of something. I don't know. Is that bacon or something? No, I think it's carrot. Ah. Yeah, it tastes almost like pancetta. I mean, it looks almost like pancetta. Mm-hmm. That's, that's that's Zita. We're yeah. <laughs> yeah. we're joined by Zita. Severia's mom is also doing. No, that's okay, Zita. We want your opinion. We may talk about this later, but this is also her first camping trip, so this is her yeah. first time eating any sort of dehydrated backpacking. backpacking food. What do you think for your first time? Not bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. It's a little lighter. Yeah. You know, I I guess that's part of the forever young sort of thing is that this is healthier, mm-hmm. maybe. Not as yeah. cheesy though. No. It is not as cheesy. No. And as I feared, the vegetables didn't really hydrate. They didn't all that hydrate well. as well. Yeah. So that's. I mean, I would have probably rather had it without the vegetables. Would be my my takeaway. All right. Mountain House. <laughs> Mountain House has changed their packaging. Yeah. And it looks great. I, yeah. I think the update they did really looks nice. They, they used to have all the the pictures on the front of the very fake looking models. Right. You know. Right. Like stock like, yeah, footage. Exactly. Like <laughs> stock footage of people outside. You know, smiling fakely you know um and wasn't weren't those some of those taken at smith rock, smith rock yeah which is not far from us here in bend right. i think you had told me that before oh that looks it's looks, definitely cheesy that definitely looks, looks super cheesy it's cheesy it's uh wow and creamy and it is it is also uh of the regular i shouldn't say regular because mac and cheese can be whatever you want it to be but the color of cheddar or, or it's the it's yellowish orange. yeah <laughs> It's orange. Orange, yes. like like the cra- the old craft yeah. like the cracks yeah. che- macaroni and cheese. Noodles are not as no hydrated. Yeah, it's yeah. A bit, yeah. It's a bit all daunting. Yeah, I would have. Uh, I mean, we, we did the max. We did the max on what it said, but I would maybe give it um, an extra couple minutes, mm-hmm. maybe. I mean, we're at what five thousand feet in elevation here, but that's what these are designed for, I believe. So I think, um, yeah, I would maybe a hair more water. It said a cup and a third. But I'd maybe give it a hair. You don't think? I'll, no, it's probably no, because it'd be really soupy if we had. Yeah, but maybe maybe give it an extra minute or two. Yeah, of a little more more time. But the flavor is quite good. I, I will say of the three, and this is, mm-hmm. I've always been partial to Mountain House versus the other two brands, and I will say I think this would be the one I would eat of the three. It's tasty. Yeah. This to me feels the most. The Mountain House is the most like traditional mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. The other ones are like nice pastas, with with cheese cheese flavor. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is like mac and cheese, those are more pasta with cheese. If that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Yeah. Good. Good analogy. Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. And now, now just for the final comparison. Yeah. Jeff's wife Joan has prepared the cheesiest for us and has just delivered it to us. The cheesiest. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is an unfair comparison. Certainly, like the most tradition, definitely drives home how much, like traditionally, how much closer the um, mountain house is to, to these, um, to this. But yeah, it's a little unfair with fresh milk, fresh butter, you know, <laughs> even in the, the processed whatever. I mean, the, the pasta is perfectly cooked. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's evenly spread cheesiness. You know, I eat this at home once a month, to be honest. So, like, I'm very partial <laughs> to this. So, yeah. Hey, this is a favorite. A favorite guilty pleasure food for me. So, mm. so yeah. I mean, I don't, again, unfair comparison. Unless you're going to drag fresh butter and milk 
And, and, and Jason, yeah. you can't see this at home, but yeah, Jason I'm is going more. back for seconds. <laughs> I'm getting more. So uh, I think that's, we know I'm his vote. For seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going back for seconds on the other three. So. <laughs> I wonder for the regular craft mac and cheese, if you could use like Nido or like a dehydrated milk out in the back country, like if you wanted mm-hmm. to pack it out, bring it in. Yeah. And then the butter would be the one thing, but you might be able to substitute like olive oil yeah. or just Vegetable something else. Yeah, yeah, something to make it for the creaminess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That'd be an interesting experiment because mm-hmm. the pasta itself does not weigh a lot, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. and the little cheese packet doesn't it's weigh nothing. a lot. Yeah, it would be more labor intensive though because you do have to boil the noodles. Yes, and you whereas, have to, yeah. you, and then you have to clean it up. Yeah. So, uh, whereas just, these are just bags, yeah. you know, you eat it, you seal it up, put it in your mm-hmm. your uh, your trash bag, and you're good to go. Yeah. So verdict, guys. What? What? Jeff. Um, of the three, well, okay. Yeah. The craft was sort of the, the best. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Um, yeah. of the three backpacking ones, I think I liked the backpackers pantry the best. Oh, okay. I, I mean the, the, uh, mountain house was really good. I yeah. was the, probably the most liked the craft mac and cheese, but I liked sort of the lightness of mm-hmm. the backpackers pantry one. It was delicious. Yeah. And I think that the mountain house for me, like it was good, but it might be too rich. Yeah, like in the backcountry because mm, it's yeah. very rich. Yeah. So it may almost yeah. be too creamy rich. So, so you're gonna go backpackers pantry. As I'm gonna well. go backpackers pantry. And I actually, yeah. I like the I actually like the Alpine Air as well. Um, yeah. But as like I said, like as a pasta with veggie and cheese, yeah. and not a mac and cheese. Yeah, that makes sense. yeah. So. I think I think I would I would go Mountain House, then backpackers pantry, and then Alpine Air. Part of me with Alpine Air, I just uh, I, I kind of want this this craft type night, right? I want when the Mountain yeah. House is giving me. That's what I want yes. if I get mac and cheese. Totally. And I like the fancy stuff they do, you know, in the restaurant with like all the different types of cheeses and bacon. I like that too, but like I think for the backcountry, I just want comfort food and I want simple. Yeah. But again, the one disclaimer would be to maybe let it sit a couple minutes more than it says on the okay. packaging so that it hydrates a little better yep. and the noodles aren't as crunchy. We got a little bit crunchy noodles, even though we did. Um, have it go as long as it was uh, said to go. Yeah. Yeah. Now you could do a couple things to kind of, yeah. You know, pump these up a little bit. You yeah. know, add in a little bit of salami or something like that. Yeah. Some, bring some parmesan. Bring some parmesan. Bring or bring yeah. some parmesan, yeah, parmesan. And, and just yeah. sprinkle that over it. Oh boy, that would be. Yeah. That would just kind of add a little oomph to it. Yeah. I'm gonna have more of the craft, by the way. Well, <laughs> going back for thirds <laughs> now, but nobody's counting. They are small bowls. They're small bowls. This is not like a big bowl situation. I'm just, it is delicious. <laughs> it is indeed. All right. All right, cool. So there you go. Right. That's our mac and cheese showdown. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'd love to hear if you have any favorites that we didn't try. Yeah, or if you have a, a recipe that you do for mac and cheese on your own, send it in. We'd love to, we'd love to hear about it. And, or tips for pumping it up a notch. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. I know in one of our long trips, and we practice this at home, but we figured out the ratio where we made we brought pasta, so we actually created our own little pasta medleys with dehydrated food. And if you have the right amount of water, you basically just cook the water down. So you don't boil it and then strain it. You just cook the water down, and the pasta actually cooks. So you end up with no water. So it's like the, it's like a no water boil method for pasta, or no ex, you know no no strain. I right. Say. Obviously, there's water, so it's not a no water option, mm-hmm. but a no strain. So that could be an option. That could be another option for your craft situation. Mm-hmm. But you do need to be willing to cook in the backcountry and clean. Yeah, and that's the tough thing. Yeah. Well, that's why we have tongues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll end on that. <laughs> <laughs>
(laughs) (laughs) On that visual, we will end our mac and cheese showdown. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media. On Instagram at almostthere underscore AP or the Almost There Adventure Podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, please make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On our next episode, we talk to former pro bicycle racer and cycling coach Janelle Spilker. As always, thanks for listening.